tonight as we get through the end of Romans chapter eight and we go back into a time of worship here in a few minutes, we are gonna have even more reason to sing his praises because Paul here at the end of chapter eight comes to his crescendo of what we began this series with talking about. This is possibly by many described as the crown jewel of the books of the Bible being Romans and chapter eight is the center stone of Romans. And tonight, I think we're getting to the best part of chapter eight. So follow me here. So we're gonna gonna be at the end of Romans chapter eight, verses 31 through 39. And it's the most wonderful assurance and security for the believer. In the most wonderful, loaded with good news uh, chapter, in the most wonderful book of the Bible. And so that's where we're going to end tonight. It's awesome. And so like I said, I believe when we're done tonight, we're going to have even more reason to praise and sing God's worthy. So, but before we get there, I do want to bring up one thing. And I think Paul's kind of bringing this up as well at the end of chapter eight. Like if you've been with us the last five or six weeks, you heard good news after good news after good news out of Paul's writings in Romans 8. We get all this good stuff. And if you're anything like me, and maybe this is just because of my Enneagram number, but maybe I'm just sitting there thinking like, what, what, what's, what, might ha- what might go wrong? Could I screw this up? Because there is an actual syndrome called the impending doom syndrome. All right, it's that, it's that idea that like, even when good things happen, you're just waiting. You, you can't even enjoy the good things because you're just waiting for the other shoe to drop. You're like, when's this gonna end? What's going to happen? And I think Paul is sensing that he has just delivered such wonderful news, verse after verse after verse in chapter 8, that maybe the the folks in Rome are reading this being like, oh man, this this is so good. But wait, when's when's the bad news coming? Well, guess what? It's not, because he's going to give them more good news to squash that impending doom syndrome that may be building up inside of them. Because what Paul talks about here is, is maybe arguably the central fear and question of the Christian life. And that's what I said earlier. Is there anything or anyone that could mess up this thing called the gospel of Jesus and his love for me? Like we've talked over the last several weeks There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. The Holy Spirit dwells within you. He is the empowerment of our faith. The the Holy Spirit not only empowers our faith, but he is the one that bears witness to our adoption into the family of God. And not only that, but the Spirit is the one who reveals the hope of our future glory with Jesus. And on and on. And so he, he gives us all this good news, And it's almost as if he's saying, now wait, I want to give you a couple more things so that you know that you cannot mess this up. This being God's love and purpose for you and for me. Because if you're anything like me and you live in the world that I live in, when you look around, it sure seems and feels like sometimes that is the case, that we can screw this up. That this world is in such a place that it does separate us from God, that it does nullify what Christ has done on the cross. We see trouble, we see hardship, we we experience persecution, especially for the Christian. 
We experience unmet needs and unmet hopes. We experience danger and death because those things come to everyone. And surely any of those prove that we can be separated from God's love and purpose and identity for us. And what Paul is saying is no, it cannot. Our experience may suggest that that is true, but Paul is saying no, that is not true. You cannot be separated from God's love and purpose and identity for you. So tonight we're gonna talk about our security and that God's love overcomes all accusations, all condemnation, and all separation. And in, in fact, sets us free to live in our new identity and live out our new purpose. Let me say that one more time. Tonight we're gonna talk about our security is in God's love that overcomes every accusation, any condemnation, and any separation and actually sets us free to live in our new identity and live out our new purpose in Christ. So if you haven't already, go ahead and turn your Bibles to Romans chapter eight, verse 31. This is where we're gonna be tonight. As always, I wanna set this up a little bit. As I've said earlier, this is Paul's crescendo at the end of a wonderful message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the pinnacle. And in verse 31 through 39, Paul is actually reflecting back on what he's already said, not just in chapter eight, but he's actually summarizing all the way back to chapter five, chapter six, and chapter seven, and chapter eight. And so he gets to this place where he kind of summarizes it and he asks four rhetorical questions in this section we're gonna look at. The section splits up into two specific places. Verse 31 through 34, we kind of see this legal argument coming forth. We're seeing words like co uh, condemn. We're seeing words like um, accusations. We're seeing words like justified. And so you, you get this very legal um, language that Paul's using. And then in verse 35 through 39, he shifts away from the legal and starts talking about the love of God. All right, so we see four rhetorical questions here, but it's split up into two sections. And, but there's also this kind of weird, um, I don't know what do you call it. There's just, it seems like Paul's talking about someone, someone very specific that up to this point, we have not mentioned, we have not talked about, Paul has not talked about. He seems to be talking with our enemy, Satan, in mind. He is the who that I believe Paul is talking about. Because I don't know anyone else who loves to repeatedly accuse us, condemn us, and attempt to separate us from the love of God other than our enemy, Satan. And so Paul seems to be addressing this who. If you're a Harry Potter fan, it's almost like Paul is saying, he who shall not be named, right? Like he doesn't mention, say his name, he just says, who? Who this? Who that? You see, Satan loves to go back constantly to the Garden of Eden. And what I mean by that is he loves to go back to his original question that brings accusation and condemnation and separation. The question that Satan loves to always dangle in front of us is, did God really say that? Did he really say that he loves you? Did he really say that he cares for you? Did he really say that he's working all things out? Does that really mean all things? You see, he loves to throw in 
that question in different ways, shapes, or forms. And so tonight, we're going to look at how Paul combats this impending doom of the doubts that Satan tries to throw at us. So verse 31, we'll start reading. We're going to read through the whole section, then we'll come back. Verse 31 says this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised. Who is it who sits at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep being led to the slaughter. No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things of this present, nor things that to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Whoo! This is the crescendo. This is it. He goes verse by verse and just picks apart everything that Satan and this earth would try to convince you that God didn't really mean it. And so, guys, this is good news. If you want to amen tonight, you feel free to do that because that's this kind of message. So when we get to verse 31 and he starts out with, what then shall we say to these things, right? What are these things? These things are what I mentioned earlier, Romans 5 through Romans 8. He's referring not just to what we talked about last week, that he works all things out for the good of those who love him. He's moving all the way back to chapter 5 where he starts his argument on all the things that God has done on behalf of the believer. So if you have not done this yet, tonight before you go to bed, you've opened up to Romans chapter five and you read five through the end of eight and you watch what God has done on the behalf of the believer. It is awesome. And so that's where he's starting. Just in chapter eight alone, in verse one, he tells us that those who are justified, made right by faith in Christ, will not be condemned. In verse 2 and 3, he tells us that God sent his son to condemn flesh and set us free from the law of sin and death. In verse 5 through 13, he talks about the Spirit of God indwells us and empowers us to live out our Christian life and eradicate sin in our life. In verse 17, that same Spirit that indwells us is the witness to our spirit of adoption in Christ and to our inheritance. And then he goes on later and says that we, we are currently tasting just a, a little bit of God's goodness. We're, remember we talked about just the appetizer. That there is a glory that is coming that will pale, like everything that we're dealing with now will, will be forgotten like that. Because of the glory and the wonder when Jesus returns and he makes all things new. And then last week we talked about that, there's, that we as followers of Christ are surrounded by total providence. That God is working all things for our good. And that ultimate good is that he's conforming us to the image of Christ. And so we, we move forward. Verse 31 and 32, let me read them one more time. What then shall we say to these things? 
If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave, up, gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So my first point tonight is this, in verse 31 and 32, is that God is for you. He's for you. If you've been around me at any point in time, whether it's at the gathering or a Sunday school class on Sunday mornings, you've heard me talk about the fact that I grew up believing that God was not for me. I believed that God was just watching and waiting to catch me in my sin. And so I lived in fear, not, not a reverent, holy, righteous fear. I was scared. And it scared me into being as straight-laced and as good as I could possibly be. Some of you may have grown up in that similar idea where you believe that God wasn't necessarily for you. He was more like the cop waiting around the corner just to catch you. He's waiting for you. And then when he gets you, he takes pleasure in punishing you. Because we've all had a cop like that where you get pulled over and you're like, this dude's enjoying this way too much. Right, But that kind of bleeds into our view of God. But Paul is saying right here at the very end of all this good news is that God is for you. How do we know that God is for us? Right there and right there. It's called the cross of Christ. It is the evidence that God is for you. That he loves you. But somehow in life, whether it's circumstantial or situational or relational or financial, we get this idea that God's not really for you. Because Satan loves to whisper, is he really for you? If he was really for you, wouldn't this be happening? If he was really for you, would that have happened? You fill in the blank. But I know all too well in my life, that's the whisper that comes quickly is that whisper of, really, are you sure God's for you? Because oftentimes things happen where I'm like, God, why? Why would you let this happen? And that's when Satan moves in and he says, because he doesn't love you. He's not really for you. And that would be a lie. And here's why we know this. And John, well, quickly, let me say this. We hear echoes from Paul of John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. In 1 John 4, 9, John says again, this is how God showed his love among us, that he sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. You see, if God, who purposed all of creation and all of eternity, and he is all-powerful, why are we afraid of opposition? That's the question Paul is raising. What shall we say to all these wonderful things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? He's, it's like the ultimate playground, like my dad's bigger than your dad, so I'm not afraid. Bring it on. What do you got? Because even if you do get to me, guess what? God's going to work it all out for my good and his glory. So come on, we can walk in confidence, not arrogance, confidence, because we know that God is for you. He is not against you. Therefore, we don't need to be afraid of opposition. Will we have opposition? Yes. Will they be victorious over us? No. Will there be people that, that push against you 
Is, there, is, is Satan going to get busy tempting you and trying to trip you up and doubt you? Yes, because he knows he's already lost. And so all he wants to do now is screw with your life and get you to doubt and question whether God actually loves you. Because that's the only hope he has. So make no mistake, God is for you. All one needs to look at upon, is to look upon the cross to see how deeply God is for you. Verse 33 and 34. Who shall bring any charge or accusation against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he who is raised. He's not still dead. He came back to life, who is now sitting at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. All right, let's pick this apart. This is awesome. In Revelations 12.10, Satan is called the accuser of the brothers and the sisters. But also in Revelation 12.10 is where he's being hurled. Like that's, that's the scripture in 12.10. We, we get this idea that he's the accuser of the brothers and sisters. While he, but that's the description of what's happening while he's being hurled. And so you look at this and you're like, okay. He is hurling away because he's gonna lose. But here's my second point. No accusation can stand against you in Christ. No accusation can stand against you in Christ. It doesn't matter what the accuser says, who the accuser is. It doesn't matter the situation you're in. It doesn't matter the sin that you have allowed into your life, the sin that you have chosen to do, the sin that will, in the future, tangle you up and mess with you. It doesn't matter the circumstances because all those things, the accusers, the situations, the sin, and the circumstances all shrivel alongside the risen Christ. Because guess where he is? Our savior, our king, and our messiah is not laying six feet under in a grave. He rose from the dead. And now he is alive. Guess where he is? He is sitting at the right hand of the father. Did you catch what he's doing? He's interceding for you. A couple of weeks ago, who else is interceding for you? The spirit of God is interceding with groans too deep for words. He, the Spirit knows when the pain is too deep, that we have no words, and so he prays on our behalf. And now we're getting the word that the Son of God, our Messiah, our Redeemer, and our Savior is also interceding for you. But the accuser remains. He's the accuser. This is where he has the most fun in our life. And so my question at this point is how does he accuse you? How does he accuse you? How does he cast shame onto you? How does the enemy try and derail you with lies, accusing you, right? Maybe it's like I, I kind of look at this conversation between Satan and God like he's like, hey, 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 did you, did you see what he did? did you, he's one of yours. Did you see what he did? Can you believe that? You don't love him, right? Like, did you see what he did? Hey, God, did you see what he did Friday night by himself in his apartment? Did you see what he was looking at? He's yours. Did you see that? He can't, you don't love him, right? He's a pervert. He's a failure. He can't even handle friendships. How will you give him a spouse? You don't really love him, right? 
Did you see her? She cuts herself and she starves herself because she doesn't even love herself, so how can you love her? He's a hypocrite. Did you see him get wasted Friday night and then try to come to church and worship you? You don't love him, right? He's a hypocrite. He's a liar. He says he loves you, but look how he lives his life. He's a liar. You don't love him, right? He's the accuser. He is the one who constantly reminds us of what we have done. He reminds us of what we have welcomed into our life. And he's constantly trying to accuse you because he wants to condemn you. But let's roll back to Romans chapter eight, verse one. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus says, no, they're mine. They belong to me. And that is the wonderful news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because when the accuser comes, let me put it this way. I look at it like a courtroom, okay? And Andy comes in. And there's a judge sitting there looking at me. And it's Jesus. And the, and the prosecutor comes out and he rolls out this long list and he starts reading everything Andy's ever done. Guilty, 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 guilty. And I got nothing because he's right. But all of a sudden, the judge stands up, walks off of his podium, and come and stands right next to me. And he stands right next to you. He takes off his judicial robe, and he says, not today. I will take whatever punishment he deserves, and I will pay whatever penalty his sin requires and I will take it on myself so that he now is the righteousness of God. You see, he takes all the accusations on himself. That's what the cross tells us. Not only does the cross tell us that he is for you and that he loves you, the cross says, I have taken it upon myself to save you and to take all the accusations upon myself. But here's the cool thing. This is what I found in my life, just a practical tip. Is that when Satan accuses you, and just maybe he's right, maybe you do rely on things that are not him for your joy and your pleasure and your comfort. Maybe you are a porn addict. Maybe you've had an abortion. Maybe you get wasted every week and you can't stop. I don't know what it is for you. And when Satan comes in he try, and he tries to accuse you, Here's what has, I've learned is the best way to fight that accusation. Agree with the accuser. Agree with him. You're right, I have done that. You're right, I did think that. I did say that, I did do that, I did go there. I did put myself in that position. But you don't stop with agreeing with the accuser. You remind the accuser who Jesus is and you say, yes, that is who I am, but Christ has taken that and he has nailed it to the cross and I am forgiven and now it's on him and I am clean and free. I've been set free from that sin. Agree with him. It takes all the power out of the accuser. Yeah, you're right, but it's been paid. I'm good. 
I think about it from this way. Maybe, maybe this lands with you a little bit better. You owe a ton of money. And someone comes in and, and pays off all of your debt and then adds to your account tenfold. Who can accuse you of owning any money? They can't. It's been paid. So you say, oh, you, used to, you, you owed $10 million. Well, guess what? It got paid. Actually, now I've been given all the riches of the guy who paid it. So accuse me of what? At the foot of the cross, accusations go to die. No accusation can stand because it is God who makes things right. Not our effort, not our acceptability. It is God's responsibility. It is God's actions towards you and towards me that wipes out all accusation. You see, God has provided a substitute for sinners like you and me. One who takes and bears the consequence of our sin and no accusation or condemnation can stick to you because Christ, this is amazing, Christ took your condemnation and put it on himself. That's why we can look at the cross and sing worship and cry at the same time because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. He took our accusations. He took our guilt. He took our shame. He took our guiltiness so that then we could be declared not guilty. You see, our guilt was laid on the innocent and his innocence was then laid upon us. It's amazing. The gospel is amazing. You see, God is our liberator, not our prosecutor. We get that mixed up. We think God is the one that's prosecuting and accusing and showing you how terrible you are. No, that's Satan's greatest trick. Because Jesus says, no, let me show you how deeply you are loved. And accusations fall away. Verses 35 through 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through those, through him who loved us. For I am sure Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Number three, nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing. Nothing. You, you see, whether you, sometimes it, hard times, stress, anxiety, persecution, maybe it's unmet needs, unmet desires, dreams that have been dashed, maybe it's physical danger or violence. All these situations would seem to tell you that you can be separated from God's love because if God loved you, you would have your dreams. If God loved you, all your needs and wants would be met. If God loved you, you would have the job that you want. If God loved you, you would have the salary that you deserve. If God loved you, you'd be have a career that you love and you'd work with people that you get along with. If God loved you, 
you'd be married. If God loved you, your marriage would have worked out. If God loved you, like you, you hear Satan get into our head trying to undo everything Paul has talked about in Romans 8. He's not working all things out for your good because if he loved you and he was for you, it would have worked out for your good. The way you determine good. The way that you want it. I'll tell you right now, I was having a conversation earlier today about this idea. If the, if, if, if the litmus test for being good is to give someone everything they want, how they want it, and when they want it, if that's the litmus test, whether God is good or not, then I'll tell you this. The worst parenting strategy in the world and we try and project it onto God and say, run the world that way. If I gave my children everything they want, how they want it, and when they want it, I would grow up the most entitled, selfish, narcissistic people. And no one would tell you that's a good way to parent people. But somehow we get this idea that if God actually loves us, if he's actually for us, then you will do what I want, when I want, how I want it. And Satan tries to sneak in and say, guess what? It didn't happen the way you thought. He must not love you. It didn't happen when you wanted it, so he must not be for you. Here's the crazy thing. Not only is God for you, and he loves you, in Matthew 11, Jesus himself invites you Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Not your situation. Your situation will not give you rest. I will give you rest. Watch from me and learn from me, and you will find rest for your souls. I love how Paul throws Psalm 44, 22 in here, where he says, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Doesn't life feel that way sometimes? You're just like, man, it's just one thing after the other. I just feel like I'm walking into a brick wall every day. My heart is being broken all the time. It just feels like that. And Paul throws it out. He's like, listen, this has been happening to God's people for a long time. That's called a life lived east of Eden. A life that's lived in a world tainted and corrupted by sin. That there will be pain and there will be suffering and things will hurt. But I love what Jesus says in John, I think it's 1633. He gives two promises. Jesus says this, you will have trouble in this world. Promise number one. Fantastic, thanks Jesus. Uh, was looking for something else. But he doesn't stop there. He gives a second promise. But he says, take heart. I have overcome the world. He says, yes, you will have trouble, but I have overcome the world. That's why Paul can say that in Christ, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. Because Christ has conquered. He didn't just die and stay there. He died and rose again and now sits at the right hand of the Father interceding for you. 
And so we can walk through life knowing that our Savior, our Messiah, is not some statue. It is not some mystical idea. It is a person, and he is alive, and he is interceding for you, and he is working all things out on your behalf. Satan loves to use our circumstances and situations to undermine the truths of God's love for you. Let me say that again. Satan loves to use your circumstance and your situation to undermine the very truth of God's love for you. It's like I said a minute ago. He takes those ideas of I'm not in the job I want. God must not love me. Like those situations. I'm not married yet. He must not love me. I'm not making what I want. He must love, not love me. Here's my encouragement to you. Don't stop trusting when trouble comes. Let the trouble lead you to trust. Don't stop trusting God who is for you and who loves you when trouble comes. Let that trouble lead you to trust. It's one of my favorite things that parenthood has taught me and I hope all of you get to see this experience someday. Because there's only a window for it. My oldest is about to exit that window but it's called a childlike faith. Because when my kids get scared, when something happens that freaks them out, that they cannot explain, that they don't know what's happening, whether that's an earthquake, whether that's a thunderclap, doesn't matter what. Maybe it's just Jurassic Park and there's a T-Rex on the screen, I don't know. But when trouble comes for them, they only have one solution to that problem. That is to find dad, that's it. And they just dig their face straight into my chest or maybe my belly, it's a little softer. But that's their solution. When trouble comes, they don't stop trusting. They run to the one who they trust. They don't doubt my goodness. They run to who they know is good. They run to those who they know love them and are for them. And we're the same way with God. When trouble comes, don't run because it doesn't feel good. Run to the one you know is good. Because nothing, no situation, no job, no relationship can separate you from the love of God. In verse 38 and 39, he says this. Paul says, nothing in the human experience, death nor life. Nothing in the spiritual realm, angels or demons. Nothing in time, nor present nor future. Or anything that opposes God, God's people, any powers, it, nothing in space, neither height nor depth, can separate you from the love of Christ. He's there. Height, depth, there, there. Opposition, whatever. God loves you. And nothing, no situation, no person, no heartbreak, no sin, no, it can't separate you from the love of God. He loves you, and he's for you, and he's invited you. This is wonderful news. He is for you, and he loves you, and he has invited you. So this is where we've been. Number one, God is for you. Number two, there is no accusation that can stand against you. And thirdly, nothing can separate you from God's love for you. So what do we do with this? This wonderful news that God is for you, there's no accusation that can stand against you in Christ, and there's nothing that can separate you from God's love. What do we do? I wanna offer three things. 
Number one. And this is for those who have never surrendered and given their life to Christ. And I wanna just, this is Romans 8, people. We gotta talk about this. Don't miss this moment because for some of you for the first time tonight, you need to surrender your life to Christ. You need to give up and give over your life to Jesus. You need to stop striving and trying in your own way to be acceptable to God because that ain't gonna happen. That's a non-starter. And so for some of you, you need to surrender to Christ and give up and give over because you're not even intruding. God has invited you. He says, come to me. Come to me, follow me. And you'll find rest for your souls. Secondly, maybe you are a believer, but you are too easily distracted by the doubts and the lies that Satan would love for you to believe. That he doesn't care for you, he is not for you, and that he doesn't love you. Maybe you're listening too much to those things. My encouragement to you is simply this. Remember and rest in these truths that we talked about in Romans 8. Remember and rest. Let that little anxious heart inside of you Rest in the promises of Romans 8 that there is no condemnation. That the Spirit indwells you and is looking to lead you and guide you. That that same Spirit confirms that you are an adopted daughter and son of God. That he is working all things out for those who love him. And that there is nothing that can separate you from his love. Maybe for some of you, you just need to remember and rest in those truths. And thirdly, for those in the room who are Christians, don't stop at remembering and resting. Live out your new life in Christ without fear of anyone or anything. We can't, guys, Jesus did not come to die on the cross so that we could just simply remember and rest. It's not why he came. We aren't set free to be passive, but to live out our new purpose and passion. We aren't set free to be scared, but to live with a sacred and secure confidence. We weren't set free to turn inward, but to turn outward and take this amazing news of the gospel of Jesus to everyone who's still shackled and enslaved to sin. We have the key. We have the knowledge of who Jesus is, so we cannot afford to just remember and rest. We have to get going in our purpose in life as Christians. We have not been set free just to come and see another church service. We were set free so that we could go and be the church and the hope of the world in Oklahoma City. If we're just coming to another church service on Tuesday nights, shame on us. If we're just coming to build a country club of young adult Christians where we hopefully can meet our spouse or find a roommate or get some friends, shame on us. Jesus did not set you free just for you. He set you free so that you might take the key to those in your sphere and bring the good news of Jesus because he is working all things. So let Romans 8 be a catalyst because some of us haven't surrendered. Some of us haven't remembered. We've forgotten the goodness of God. And some of us 
have stopped and we're not actively sharing our faith. I always tell people this, because this is true in my life. This is just personal experience. If your faith is not vibrant and, and uh, exciting, I can only guarantee one thing. You're not sharing your faith. You cannot have a dull and boring faith if you are consistently stepping in and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with people. Because when you share the gospel of Jesus Christ with people, with lost, with the dead, you are gonna see the lost found, you're gonna see the dead come alive, and you're gonna see an exciting faith that you could never imagine. But we come to church every week because we have a boring faith and we need a little, bit, we need a little music to make me feel better. I need a little quiet time to make me feel better. I'll tell you what will make you feel better. Go share your faith. And you will see God use you to change eternities. That's exciting. That is what Romans 8 is for. I hope, I hope Romans 8 has encouraged you. I hope Romans 8 has taken you from a place of doubt to a place of secure confidence. But more than anything, I hope that Romans 8 has shown you that God is working in your life and he is ready and willing to work through your life to set people free. Let's pray. God, man, thank you for Romans 8. Thank you for Paul. Thank you for the words and the promises that just get heaped on one after the other after the other. God, thank you that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Thank you that we have a new hope that we do not see because, God, what we see is sad and it is broken. And, Lord, thank you for allowing us, brothers and sisters and co-heirs with Christ, that you would choose to use us as your ambassadors and representatives to this world. God, I pray for boldness for those in here tonight, Lord, who have never surrendered their life to Christ. God, I pray that you would give them boldness and courage not to walk out of here tonight until they deal with you. I pray for those who are buying into the lies that you are not for them and that you do not love them. God, I pray that they would be reminded very quickly and loudly, God, that you love them and you are for them. And God, I pray that you would build into us a burning passion to take the gospel that has set us free from the law of sin and death and we would take it to this world because we have the key that will set them free. So God, as we go into a moment of reflection, I pray you do work. We're gonna leave these on the screen. I wanna encourage you to pray through them wherever you may be. As always, our prayer team will be in the back and they'll be in the front afterwards. And then, man, we're gonna go back into some praise and worship after we do this and I'm just, I can't wait.